I said, I'm just taking this year to just breathe into presence. And I was also turning 70. So I felt like that was a very monumental time for me, you know, to like, how do I want to live the rest of my life? And it was very clear. It's through joy. It's through creativity. It's through being of service. Welcome to Making Change With Your Money, a podcast that highlights the stories and strategies of women who experienced a big life transition and overcame challenges as they redefined financial success for themselves. Now here's your host, certified financial planner, Laura Rotter. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Rabbi Eva. Rabbi Eva received rabbinic ordination through Aleph the Alliance for Jewish Renewal. And she now serves as their head of spiritual direction for the Aleph Ordination Program, supporting the spiritual development of the seminary students and faculty. She's also a teacher of Jewish mindfulness meditation, Musar, and wise eldering. She draws on her skills as a creative artist, and so she enjoys integrating the expressive arts into her rabbinate. As a spiritual leader, she designs transformative learning and ritual opportunities to provide seekers with joyful and creative approaches to Judaism. And I'm so happy to say I know Eva since our kids were in high school. I've seen her go through some transitions, including recently moving to Colorado from Manhattan. So Rabbi Eva, thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest and welcome to the Making Change With Your Money podcast. Thank you, Laura. That was a very sweet introduction. So, My pleasure. I'm going to start with the question that I've been starting all my interviews with, which is, Eva, what was money like in your family growing up? Hmm. That's a complicated question. I grew up as a um, first-generation American. My parents had just come to this country, Holocaust survivors. My mother was in the camps. She grew up in a very comfortable environment before the war, was encamped when she was a young teenager and everything was confiscated. My father also had a a very comfortable upbringing, then ended up coming to this country with nothing. So I grew up pretty scarce and in an assimilated community where people were already established. You know, everything it felt like to me was a choice about, can we afford this? Can we not? And So it instilled in me this sense of scarcity, a fear that we might not have enough. And indeed we did, but it was very, you know, starting off at lower middle class and kind of moving into middle class as I got older. But I had already started working when I was very young. You know, there was babysitting, there was making posters for my father. He he became a stockbroker and making all of his presentations. And, and then I started working in retail in high school. And I was pretty much working full and teaching Hebrew school, but I was pretty much working full time from the time I was 16 until last year when I was 70. So there's been quite a transition and a lot of emotion around money for me. So I'm finally understanding. I have enough. I am enough. I will not be a bag lady. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Eva. We do 
get messages from our parents, whether they're overt or whether you receive the message through their behavior. And of course, your your parents came through quite a trauma, and I'm sure that that was communicated to you. Were you an only child? Do you have siblings? Yes, I have a younger sister. And we were, you know, treated differently. They had a little bit more means. So for myself, having to put myself through college, having to make certain kind of choices about not completing university where I wanted and coming back and then taking a, a position, my career choices were also predicated on not outshining my parents who did not have college education. It took me a while, you know, I mean, I went ahead and got two master's degrees, but never what I did, I, I feel like I led a very good life, you know, my twenties and thirties and, you know, got married in my thirties and never deprived myself. But what it meant is I took extra jobs. So it was, in fact, I was just talking with a friend of mine the other day about this yesterday, a converta, a study partner that it was not uncommon for me to like be doing three gigs. So I'd have my bread and butter job. I was a speech pathologist for 42 years. And then I would be teaching aerobic. I had a wearable art business for many, many years, but I was able to afford the things that I felt were kind of luxurious, like opera tickets and traveling a lot. And, you know, but it, it meant I had to work hard for it. You know, it, it just didn't understand investing, even though that was my father's profession. So I didn't learn from them. So I'm curious just to understand as we set the background for your life's journey, did your mother also work? You said you didn't want to outshine either of them. Yes, my mom always worked work that didn't require education. So she worked in a nursing home. She worked in a yardage shop in Europe. After the war, she had trained to be a couturier designer. So she had a lot of skills and, you know, just fantasized, I think, about a fabric. My parents, actually, when I was young, had a grocery store with my grandparents. My grandparents, both of my mother's parents survived and they all settled in San Diego where I was born. So they had a mom and pop store. So my mom worked very hard during that time. And my paternal grandmother helped raise us. So she lived in our home. So there were five of us in a very small home. A lot of interesting messages about money. And my grandmother got a very small pension from Austria. And, you know, beginning of the school year, I'd always make sure that I got one cool outfit because everything else was always negotiated. Either my mother would have to sew it, something for me. I could draw it out and she would make it. And that's why I ended up going into retail in a very hip store so that I love fashion. So, <laughs> <laughs> And it sounds like you had strong female role models. That is that correct? That your mom and, and your grandmothers were in the working world, were also responsible for earning money. Does that resonate? My maternal grandmother, who, you know, was co-owner of the store, I believe so. I didn't look to my mom as a role model. Subsequently, you know, toward the end of her life, I see her as really stepping into herself and doing other things that were not monetarily productive, but, you know, she was a Holocaust educator. She had, for someone who didn't get a high school degree, ended up 
getting an honorary doctorate, becoming woman of the year, and you know, so she found her place and her space and had an adult bat mitzvah after her 90th birthday. You know, she might have been a late bloomer in some way because she really supported my father in his desires. He was brilliant, just a, a Renaissance man who had so many gifts. You know, he used to late at night with that, with only a high school education, was one of the few who became a stockbroker, you know, had come from San Diego to New York to train a bit, you know, so she supported his passions, but I don't think she came into her own. So, you know, role model, role model as a human being, but in terms of finances now, I was totally on my own. It's interesting. I think I, I hear stories of that generation where the women really come to know themselves. It's almost after their husbands are older or past or don't take center stage in the same way that you, that they have the ability to flourish and be more, I guess, get a little bit more attention. That particular generation, it was just very different times than now. I'm curious, since you talked about, though you were the one who did the designing, but was your mother also creative and artistic in the same way you are? Very much. And probably not encouraged in that so much. In that, She would hijack my elementary school projects, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you don't have the homework, hijack your kid's homework so you can be self-expressed. It sounds like, though, you knew you always wanted an education, that you put yourself through college. What was that drive? Because I'm not sure I knew that at, my, at at that age. I understood within. I, I was um, very active in forensic speaking when I was in high school. And my coach saw the gifts and really encouraged me, you know, to just really push myself because education was going to be my ticket out of my community. I grew up right at the border near Tijuana south of San Diego. And I was just never, I never felt that that was my place. So I, I really put a premium on education. And I, that was also, my, I feel my legacy for my children, that I worked really hard in order to be able to give them an education to then discern what their future would be. I had no expectations. If one wanted to be a graphic artist, I would be as proud as one, you know, being a doctor or a lawyer, but I felt like to give them that kind of foundation was really important without the stresses of having to work so hard during, you know, through undergraduate work. I'm curious what what you felt from your parents, because they both did not have an education. Was there a sense from them that you were an extension of them? Or, you know, were they cheering you on? Or was there more of a sense of competition? I'm curious, did they, were they eager to see you have a college education? You are very wise in, <laughs> in your questioning. Absolutely not. So almost a, a kind of covert betrayal for me to have such a drive. And not only that, I went away to school. I left the community to went Becky's to Brandeis. And, you know, I just, I wanted to be away and I wanted to soak up the world. And, and it was very difficult. And I think that there had always been some kind of residual resentment. And I actually heard the words, why do you get to do that? I never got to do that. I won't even say mixed messages, but very clear that if I'm going to do this, I've got to do it in spite of them. So Eva, clearly a very, you were a very independent woman, I guess, even starting 
at age 16, perhaps even earlier, that you knew your own mind. And I was also a good girl. You know, I wouldn't um, do anything to agitate because I was I was sensitive enough to understand without knowing the stories of my parents, you know, the hardships they had gone through. It wasn't until later that I got more details in terms of what they went through. Oh, so they didn't share their stories with you? No, not when I was young. In fact, um, I was pretty protective. I had an intuitive sense. I would have awful dreams. I had nightmares about SS officers and, you know, trying to share the horrible things that would happen to me, you know, about these perpetrators, like doing things to me that were unconceivable, except in a dream, you know, it was not spoken about then. When I left after high school, my mom started, you know, I'm speaking to her and I was already privy. My father was a little bit more open, but he hadn't gone through the same thing. He left Vienna when he was shy of 17. So he didn't go through the camps. And I knew my mother had gone through some very difficult times. I mean, she was in three camps, always with her mother, never separated. Five transports going from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz to Oderon, back to Auschwitz, then to Theresienstadt. But she had been in in Dr. Mengele's line a few times. We know what that means, but it was never um, specifically or overtly spoken about. That's quite a legacy to be aware of and how brave of her to start to talk about it. You were older at that point, but that takes a lot of courage on her part. So again, when I met you, you had been a speech pathologist for quite a long time. How did how did that come about? To be a speech pathologist? Yes. <laughs> You're asking fun questions today. I, mean, I know you to be such a spiritual, creative woman that would not be the box I would have put you into. Wow. So I had a fascination with neurology. I was fascinated by the brain and I thought I would be a doctor. And as I said, you know, I, I just needed to finish school. I came back to San Diego and speech pathology was an arena where I could study the brain, understand how, you know, speech and language are formulated and get some grounding in neurology without having to go forward. Because I also felt just, it it has to, it's interesting speaking with you. It has to do with money. Like I didn't want to take out the loans because I came from a family, didn't have credit cards. And if they did have any kind of credit, it was paid off immediately. So there was a very negative connotation to taking out money. And I think that was so ingrained in me Like you don't borrow for something, you save it first and then you can do it. So we would do very modest vacations, you know, because that was the extra money that my dad earned so that we could go to these little cabins up at Lake Tahoe or something. But there were the things that perhaps some of our neighbors would do, which were more extravagant. And then, you know, or or the big holiday gifts. So I think that influenced me in terms of I can't take the risk to take out loans in order to complete the education that I needed. And then I had reconsidered when I was 30 and realized that's too much work for me. (laughs) (laughs) It is a lot of work as we both know from watching our kids. So living vicariously, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a decision pretty much out of college to pursue speech pathology? I I did it in college. I went back 
to San Diego. I completed a bachelor's while I was starting master's classes. It's like, let's just finish school. So I never allowed myself that kind of college experience, you know, as my friends talk about their college friends and or sorority or the things that they would do. It's like I worked full time and I went to school full time and I took a lot of units and just wanted it to be over with, you know, get out into the workforce. Interesting. I'm wondering as we continue this conversation, if that personality trait of holding a lot at once continues. I do feel like when we've spoken to each other, perhaps it makes you come alive. What's it that of doing many things at once? (laughs) Is that, do you feel like that's been a pattern? It certainly has until last year. And it was, I don't know if this is appropriate to talk about this now, but I was you know, you and I have both done a lot of work in mindfulness and, and all of them. I think, what am I doing all this for? And spinning my wheels and feeling it's not like FOMO, you know, it's not like fear of missing out. It's just, I am wired to do many things and to do it to the max. And when we had made the decision to move to Colorado and I gave up a congregation, I was still working for the seminary. So there again, I had two positions, plus I was teaching, you know, in community. I was like, I had an accident. We were hiking up in the Adirondacks and I shattered all the bones here on my left side from my shoulder all the way down through my wrist, walking around moving like this, you know, and, and I decided to align with the cycle in our Jewish calendar that I would take a Shemitah year. And Larry was totally in support of this because he too, during this year, had decided to retire. It was a really interesting proposition because for me, I had not really known that sense of, for me, it was rehabbing. I also had major back surgery a few months after we moved here, which I had postponed from New York. But So that's 2022, just to situate. Yep. And it was incredible. My experience was so beautiful because we were so conscientious. We were living in a furnished rental. Many of the things we had um, given away, you know, and we still had plenty in storage. There was, but I practiced the sense of non-scarcity. You don't have to work so hard in order to feel like, you know, that you deserve it or can have it. And Wow, we didn't purchase, we weren't consumers. We, you know, really lived very low key. I wasn't about joining things. We didn't join a synagogue. I didn't join the rabbinical council here or, you know, groups. I said, I'm just taking this year to just breathe into presence. And I was also turning 70. So I felt like that was a very monumental time for me, you know, to like, how do I want to live the rest of my life? And it was very clear. It's through joy. It's through creativity. It's through being of service, you know, in those realms. And, you know, this, this notion of overdoing, it, it was a practice for a full year, you know, and I would catch myself, you know, of course, it's seductive. You're new in town. There are invitations to participate, to lead, to belong. And, and this idea, we were also looking for a house So, and we subsequently moved into this home and now we're total full out consumers because we had no rakes and brooms and (laughs) and furniture. (laughs) 
<laughs> but there is a different consciousness about how we consume and what matters to us at the stage in our life. Um, you know, I still work for the seminary. I do some life cycle work. I like teaching in community. I do it in small chunks instead of committing myself the way I used to. You know, yes, let's do this two-year class every week. I'll meet you, you know. If it's Monday, it must be Musa. If it's Tuesday, it must be spiritual direction. You know, it's like the, those days are over. And I love it. It's very countercultural what you're describing, because of course we're in a consumer society. That goes without saying. But it's not only financial consumerism or material consumerism, but this sense that, and I do it as well, that every moment has to be towards a purpose and spoken for. And if I have some time that I'm alone walking my dog, well, I've got to listen to that podcast or I have to read that novel. And this, you know, that's why you and I have been involved in meditation communities of just being is really a revolutionary idea for us. And knowing you, Eva, and how you have done so much in your life, I'm I'm amazed that you that you're able to say that it felt good and it feels good. Because as you describe it, intellectually it sounds amazing and it sounds a little scary to me. Well it's like as you say that I think, yeah, there's a lot of joy in Dayenu. And you know, it doesn't mean I'm around you know, as a vegetable, I'm involved right now in something that is so joyful for me. It's a cohort through the Jewish studio process. And I'm in their creative facilitator leadership program. And that is exactly what I want to be doing. And I just digressed, you know, on my rabbinic path <laughs> for five years. So I'm finding that I can engage in things that are joyful without guilt you know, that they bring pleasure. I mean, one of the mottos in um, in the Jewish studio process is follow your pleasure. There are many times throughout the day, you know, that first of all, I do have a gratitude practice. I love to get up, you know, kiss my mezuzah, you know, just do a little prayer. I look outside this beautiful view. We We have amazing skies and a lot of sunshine here. And at the same time, you know, there are periods, I mean, I have a lot of bumps and obstacles and, you know, still doing rehab and all or my body, but to say, wow, so where's my pleasure, you know, and it helps me recalibrate. So it, it's not a Pollyannish, but it's a very true way of living for myself that I'm finally able to not just say it and teach it, but to be it. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I'm going to move past the digression I always knew you since we met as a very spiritual person, still sort of seeking the right path. So how did that come about, the decision to leave a career of over 40 years to do something that um, I'm sure a lot of people thought you were a little crazy to do? Well, I always have a couple answers when people ask me that question because they're curious. One is that it sparked a lot of people who were in their 50s and 60s, like, you mean you can really change your life like that? And said, you could do anything you want. You know, these are choice points. But I think it started off by my being, getting trained 20 years ago as a spir Jewish spiritual director. I've been very attentive to like, where is God present in my life? And where isn't God present in my life? 
You know, it's not just this concept that, you know, I know myself as a spiritual human being, but I was also a bit of a lost soul in Westchester, you know, hadn't quite found my right place and, you know, started off in spiritual direction with an Ursuline nun down in South New Rochelle until finally I found this training program, which changed the course of my life. And it was renewal Judaism. It was up at Eilat Chaim. I had already had some engagement with renewal Judaism and Absalman out in Berkeley when I was younger. You know, it's just, I wanted to go from one two-year program to another. A lot of my um, peers in the spiritual direction program were already clergy. They were serving as rabbis and cantors and would say, you know, you should consider this. And I thought, I'm not good enough, not smart enough. How am I ever going to take this on? I can't afford it. It's a very expensive proposition, as we know. And, you know, I had my kids in school. And And of time as well as money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, then it came to a point, I had a a, a epiphanal experience. It was during Shavuot, and I was up at Isabella Freeman and Reb Zalman, who was very important, well, presence, but not physical presence so much for me because I wasn't in the inner sanctum, but certainly it had engagement. He had canceled. I had an experience the night before with his wife, who does this imaginal work. And imagine Shavuot, and you don't know, you're lying there, you're at the base of a mountain, and it was like, oh, I guess it's Sinai. (laughs) And you get a message, and these heavy tablets plop down in front of me. And there are three directives one, you can have it all, two, be a rabbi. Three, now go girl. But there was something in that message that, you know, really penetrated me. That was something different than, and I had done a lot of dream work for, you know, 30, 40 years already, but this was different. It helps move through shame. It helps move through secrets. It helps get us into reality in this world that is so cracked and unreal at times. Anyway, back to her. So I tell her my story. I tell her my dream. And she says, I've been wondering, you know, because again, so many of my peers in that program were already clergy or in rabbinical school. So she invited me to come out to Ohio where they were having, you know, two weeks where I immersed myself in classes. The teachers, you know, the rabbis, they assess me. I assess the program, yada, yada. And it just felt like really natural at that point. Like, why fight it? I'm tired of two-year programs. It worked until a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And I needed to do classes and take a deep breath and retire, you know? That must have been scary. Or was it that at that point, you just knew it was the right thing to do? I mean, I, I think we all question ourselves when we're at those tipping points in our transitions. So what helped you sort of know that it was the right decision to make? It was enough already. You know, I found myself doing things that I I didn't really want to be doing. You know, systems change, educational systems change. And, you know, there was more administrative work than actual working with kids. And I felt like if this is what it would mean to get a real retirement sticking in five years, I didn't want to do it. So it was a, a point where I was like, maxed out. And yeah, you know, again, coming back to that financial lack of security, 
are we going to be? And we were fine. You know, we're better than fine. But it's it comes back to how I was raised and be careful, you know, save 10%, 20%, because you never know who could come, take everything away. You've got to be able to escape. And it's taken me years to work through that. That's true. Right. Having grown up with a message of scarcity, no matter what the numbers tell you, it's often hard to actually take it into your body to really understand it and to know it. I'm also curious, Eva, what other supports did you have while you went through that transition? I'm wondering if, you know, I'm imagining maybe it was helpful that you had a new identity to move into. Was that, you know, like... I actually didn't speak about being in rabbinical school in the beginning. Part of me that felt, who's going to judge me? You know, and I didn't want that. I was very protective. So my support system were really my my dear friend, my husband, he was behind me 100%. But you can't always take for granted that that's the case. So thank that's you. That's correct. No, he was he was there. He wasn't going to participate in any of this, but you know, it was beautiful to just know that I had his support and my friends had always encouraged me like, you know, you should go for this and so I feel like that was held me. I didn't even tell my parents I was in rabbinical school until my father was close to his passing. He had Alzheimer's at the time. And, you know, I just felt like I could say it to him. And he smiled, you know, because I I did receive a lot of transmission in terms of my Jewish connection, my neshama from him. He was very devotional. So we had this very interesting bifurcated relationship, you know, in terms of the competition on one side and my being very sensitive and the other where I knew that we were very aligned. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you. What did your daughters say? Well, let's say the older one said, that's cool, mom. (laughs) (laughs) And the younger one, (laughs) who was in junior high at the time, said, don't tell anybody at you. Exactly. (laughs) It was mortified. Um, but they were both at my ordination and they were very, you know, I felt their pride. You know, we all have very different styles and how we relate to religion and our own sense of spirituality and God. And that's all part of the package of growing as a family. I mean, they gave me the space to be who I want. And I feel it's important for me, not as a tit for tat, but to just support them in their process whatever that might look like. So Eva, what what skills do you feel you honed over the 40 years again of, of working with children in the school system? Do you see how some of those skills came with you into this next part of your life? I'm just curious. Well, I think about presence. I think about connection. I think about looking at each little being or their parents through the eyes of Salam Elohim, that we are all divinely created in the image of God. And that, you know, my task was to offer them whatever I could to, whether it was remediation or to elevate them, you know, to be the best they could. And sometimes it was a bigger struggle than other times, you know, one has to be willing and ready to receive. And 
you know, it's very complicated when you're with children. I love children though. And, you know, so that was always a given that, you know, spirit came through me in terms of my love for who I was with. You know, I think the spiritual direction really changed also how I listened to people, that I could be more present without being more frontal in my teaching, to really be a presence to give, you know, children. I did work with adult aphasics also, just a place to to express themselves in the way they needed and that there wasn't always one way to do that. That's interesting. I hadn't thought that you were trained in spiritual direction again while you still were in the school system so that that also informed so it's sort of back and forth. Both your spiritual life and training informed your your work in the school system and your work in the school system then now informs who you are in the broader, more spiritual world. So I like that. So I want to follow on that line of creativity. It's come up now in your work as a rabbi. I'd, you know, frankly, because I've only heard it mentioned once before, I'd love to learn more about the Jewish studio. Is it the project process? What uh... process? Yeah, it's the Jewish studio project that teaches the process. Okay. So when I was I don't know if I said this already. When I was in rabbinical school, we had a um, a student, a rabbi intern at Ramamu. And I was involved in, you know, aspects of the community there. This was Rabbi Jessica Kate Meyer. And we're sitting together one day having tea and talking about, well, what will it be like when we both, you know, are ordained as rabbis? And I shared with her my dream, which was through the expressive arts. You know, she she immediately caught on and she says, you've got to speak to my friend Adina. They were both still in school in Boston. And so I reached out to Adina and learned about what she had been doing, her mother being an art therapist, and she integrating that with Jewish text. And I thought, wow, that's like some of the stuff I want to do when I grow up. You know, I had taken a few workshops with them over the course of the pandemic. I always didn't have a lot of time to do it, but I'd been following them. And then I applied, they have, um, this is the third cohort of their creative facilitator training. And as I knew that I was leaving New York, I said, I can make time for this now. If I can get in, I'm in. I got in and I'm in. And it's a beautiful cohort. And we have it's about engaging us in the creative process to look at our own text. So there's, there is a process, you know, that's grounded in text study with Havruta. There's always a spiritual grounding. We work in, in Havruta, then we go back. Havruta is like with a study partner. A study partner. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, I have an ongoing one also, in addition to just these weekly experiences we then do some reflection and then we do art and then we do what's called witness writing. So what was that process like, or what is it that we see? And then we debrief it. And that's kind of like what these sessions are like. And it so resonates for me because it's not, I'm not a artist per se, and I'm not an art teacher and I'm not an art therapist, but I truly believe in the creative process I believe we are all creative spirits and how we manifest that, whether it's in the kitchen or in the garden, in the way that we converse with people, writing poetry or making fine art, you know, there is something in each of us that has the potential for 
blossoming creatively. Here, I'm actually, I'm so excited in a couple of weeks during the counting of the Omer, you know, from the second night of Passover on, we do this process. So I'm going to teach something called Musart, that I made up, right? Which is combining Musar, which is taking a soul quality, which will align with the energy of the week, right? And then making art about it. So I'm going to be doing that at the JCC and I'm very excited to launch it because that was a little dream of mine. It sounds wonderful. Is the Jewish Studio Project accessible to lay people? Do they? Everybody, everybody. I can send you a link. Yes, please. And I'll put it in the show notes for anyone interested. So you're still on a journey, it seems, to still find... Until my last breath. <laughs> on the journey. Hopefully. <laughs> Again, always looking to align your your soul's skills and interests with where you're most needed. So it sounds like I know last time we spoke, you talked about integrating the arts more. So is, is there, I guess I'm wondering as our listeners are also women, perhaps going through a life transition, as you look back on how your path has come out, are there any any things you can recommend? <laughs> Either resources or just orientation? I believe that all the answers, all the wisdom lies within ourselves. It's about deeply listening, paying attention to our dreams. As you had asked before, you know, about role models, like what are other people's stories? And knowing that along the way, there are going to be digressions and bumps and disappointments, but that's not the end of the journey. That's just a stop in the moment. I think, you know, having a an ongoing positive attitude, which is not always so easy, you know, and I, I appreciate, you know, I know that I was, I've been gifted with more of the positive <laughs> than the negative, even though I can get pretty salty. But, you know, it just, um, to really, it's gratitude would be the foundation for me. Blessings, you know, to really appreciate all the the gifts we've been given, even during hard times. And for those who aren't as as fortunate, you know, as we are. You know, that there's it's amazing. Some of the the most spiritually oriented people I've met are people who have nothing, like materialistically. You know, when I was in India a few years ago, I'm looking at the spirit and the colors of the the people there who are just so connected to some realm greater than themselves, you know, and knowing that they still held this foundation of gratitude. I think that's really important. You can do all the reading in the world, all the text study in the world to be able to just take in and in silence. Um, Like you had said before, in our society, we're so consumed with feeling every moment. But how do we listen if there's no space to listen? So what I'm hearing you say also, Eva, is to have the practices in place where you can take time to be silent, even for a short period of time. I've personally found that it does take a practice or some kind of practice in order to step away from whatever fear or shame comes up as we go through big life transitions. If you inherently tend to look on the bright side, and even with that, we both know 
how as you go through the ups and downs of life, we need to cultivate the ability to be grateful and to recognize what we have rather than what we're programmed for is to always recognize what we don't have. You know, I'm also thinking that for people who are in that place of discernment or wanting a change on their journey, to tap into their creative sources, you know, to allow themselves, all of us to dream. I still think one day I'm going to be a homeopathist and a real artist, you know, (laughs) just I need to put in a time, you know, the places I want to go and maybe it won't happen. And I, I will be satisfied enough. You know, the, the imagination is really the key to not block ourselves from imagining how it might be if we've always wanted to be a ballroom dancer and we don't even know how to put on our shoes yet, you know? I think imagination's important. Yes, allowing ourselves to dream. I um, I'm smiling. I have in the corner of my office magic markers and stickies and paint and... I was never a visual person. I'm still not. It's not a talent, but I now wake up every day and time myself. I give myself five minutes to just, you know, maybe with some watercolor and a paintbrush, just paint something. And which is, again, my interest in learning more about the Jewish Studio Project. So thank you for telling us about that. So, Eva, as we come towards the end of our conversation, Curious, has your definition of success and perhaps even financial success shifted for you over time? And if it has, how has it? Success because my kids are off leading lives that bring them gratification. You know, I was never a hovering mom or a worrying mom in that worry, yes, but not on top of them. But feel so grateful for the life I live. It's not, you know, we have, we have a good life and, you know, living here makes me feel, oh, this is success. You know, having choices is success to me and financial success. You know, I've never gone for the big, like rock star dreams of fame and fortune. (laughs) That wasn't my, my path in life, but we're, we're good. I feel more confident now on a very small pension than I ever did when I was earning okay dollars. So I think it's a matter of perception. You know, could we have more? Could I be like so-and-so, you know, and it all comes down to choices, knowing that anything beyond the basics is success. Thank you for that and sharing that. I, I can see it in your face, how you feel like how you're living your life now is how you were meant to live your life, whatever that means. And also I'm thinking of a quote, I think it was from John Bogle, who the founder of, of Vanguard, and he he was at a party of some, you know, very wealthy hedge fund manager and commented to the person he was with, I have something he will never have. I have enough. Such a pleasure to talk to you, Eva, and learn a little bit more about your life. But thank you so much for 
for sharing with me and my listeners. It was a pleasure. Oh, well, it was really beautiful to be able to spend this hour with you, Laura. And I wish you every success in the world. Use your imagination and make those little paints and, and provide such guidance from, from your big heart um, to the people that you serve. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rabbi Eva Saxbolder. I'd like to share some takeaways from the podcast. First takeaway is you don't always need to be doing. Eva describes her life in the past. If it's Monday, it must be Musar, the study of soul traits. If it's Tuesday, it must be spiritual direction. She no longer feels the need to be filling her time in the same way, no longer needs to be doing so much or having so much. Now she does her projects in small chunks. Second takeaway, follow your pleasure. It's okay to engage in things that are joyful without guilt. Eva is in the Creative Facilitator Leadership Program of the Jewish Studio Project, which is an organization that combines visual art creation with Jewish text study. She has established a gratitude practice and asks herself, where's my pleasure when she needs to recalibrate? Third takeaway, realize that it is possible to make the decision to change your life and then actually do it if you want to. Eva left her over 40-year profession of being a speech pathologist. She went to rabbinical school while working full-time and getting the kids ready for school and ultimately became a rabbi. And finally, trust that all the answers, all the wisdom lies within ourselves. We need to deeply listen, to pay attention to our dreams. Eva encouraged us to tap into our creative sources and allow ourselves to imagine. And know that along the way, there are going to be digressions and bumps and disappointments, but that's not the end of the journey. Are you enjoying this podcast? Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss next week's episode. And if you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Making Change With Your Money. Certified financial planner, Laura Rotter specializes in helping people just like you organize, clarify, and invest their money in order to support a life of purpose and meaning. Go to www.trueabundanceadvisors.com forward slash workbook for a free resource to help you on your journey. Disclaimer, please remember that the information shared by this podcast does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. It's for information purposes only. You should seek appropriate professional advice for your specific information.